Hello, I'm Nick Bastow, and in this Public Sector Perspectives episode, we explore the subject of well-being in public sector workplaces. One of the consequences of COVID has been an increased focus on well-being in the workplace. As we all struggled with the realities of working during a global pandemic, changes in workplaces and in the way those workplaces had to function, and the new pressures that came into our family and personal lives during a health crisis, workplace well-being moved away from being just an area of concern for people in culture or HR groups, and became at least in theory a priority for everyone, from team leaders to departmental secretaries. But what does well-being at work really mean? Is it about just feeling happy? Is it about fruit boxes and Tai Chi in the lunchroom? Is it about feeling like your work's making a real contribution to the world? And that's why this well-being series, developed in partnership with Ipa Victoria's People and Culture Community of Practice, features a two-part discussion, bringing together two researchers with deep understanding about how public sector workplaces function and what research tells us about workplace well-being. Professor Deborah Blackman is Head of School and a member of the Public Service Research Group in the School of Business at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. She has particular expertise in the impact of system complexity in workplaces and the current state of middle manager capability in the Australian Public Service. Dr Fiona Buick is a Senior Lecturer in the School of Business also at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Her research focus is on the role of organisational culture, strategic human resource management and human resource management in improving public sector performance. As well as having a PhD in management and a Masters of Human Resource Management, Fiona's also worked as a human resource practitioner in the Australian Public Service and at CSIRO. Understanding what we really mean when we talk about wellbeing is crucial if we want to design workplace programs and support that can actually make a difference. And so I began by asking Dr. Fiona Buick about what we know already about workplace well-being and what that knowledge tells us about where to focus our efforts if we want to improve well-being in public sector workplaces. The research suggests that it comprises both uh, sort of an an emotional component, so an affective component, which is called hedonic well-being. Um, And this is where it's, it's satisfaction, about life. So am I happy with how my life's going? Am I happy with certain domains in my life? So my, my family life, my work life and so forth. Um, and, and essentially it's stated that you have, you have higher levels of well-being if you experience more positive emotions, so more joy, happiness, etc., versus more negative negative emotions. So that in inverted commas, because there's a stigma attached to that as well often. But for well-being, there's an aspect which is uh, described in in the research as eudaimonic well-being. And this is where, are we achieving our life's potential? Do we have a sense of mastery? Do we have control over things in our environment? And this is where sort of work-life balance, flexible working comes in, for example. Are we challenged? Are we stimulated? Do we know what we're supposed to be doing? Are we doing meaningful stuff with our life? So is our work meaningful in, in, a, in an organisational context? And are our relationships, uh, do we have positive relationships? You know, uh, are, are our relationships satisfying and gratifying and so forth? So think it is much broader than what we realise. Um, and, and this is where the, the work that Debbie and I do, um, I think would 
as a plug, um, where it's so important because we'll, we'll talk about, you know, effective managerial practice, providing people with role clarity, making sure that they know why their work matters, um, making sure that you're, you're nourishing the relationships in the workplace. Um, and a recent research project that we've done focuses on purposeful hybrid working. So making sure that you're creating the space to develop those relationships in the workplace and get that fulfillment that you need and understanding why what you're doing matters um, as well as the other aspects. Deborah, how do you think COVID's shifted the way we think about wellbeing or perhaps hasn't shifted the way we think about wellbeing? I think it shifted it in that people are talking about it a lot more. And I think the reason for that is because the impact of it, both the and both forms of it. So I think the reality of trying to manage homeschooling, working at home, two of, you know, both parents trying to work, the difficulties of having to not only be in a place that you weren't working before necessarily, but also suddenly realizing that the way you did everything simply doesn't work anymore. All of those things were hugely complex and, and complicated all at once. And so the reality of it became very clear that when we have to make big shifts, not a surprise, we have to make big amendments in what we do. All of that was very complex. But the other thing it did was give people a lot more time to think about what they actually did. There was a lot more time for reflection in some ways. I mean, in some ways not because people were really busy, but in other ways, there was almost this... um, everything has to change. So I have to think about what I'm doing slightly differently and why am I doing it? And, you know, all the stuff around the great resignation is because people realize, well, maybe I'm not living my best life. Maybe there are other things I could do. And particularly when it was, well, now we need to go back to what we were doing before. Hmm, Actually, I'm not sure I want to do that because I've had time to think about it. So there's two big parts of this. There's the individual's view of their work. And then there's the workplace trying to manage it. And so, you know, as as the managers trying to look after their staff at the same time as trying to change all the things they had done, all the things that they took for granted became challenged. How do you know when people are doing a good job? We think you know, but actually maybe you don't. So I think in terms of how does it shift it, I think as we've come out from COVID, it means that we are having conversations much more regularly. Health and safety conversations are different and they will remain different. The concept of psychological well-being will remain on the agenda in a way that I don't think it was before. One of the things that strikes me is that well-being's been an issue in across all workplaces, or almost all workplaces in public, private, community sector workplaces. From IPA's perspective, I guess we're interested in what's happening in public sector workplaces. And so that raises the question of whether you think workplace well-being issues uh, but there are particular well-being challenges for people working in public service workplaces, or do you think large public sector workplaces effectively look like all any other work, any other large workplace? I'd be interested in both your your perspectives on that. Um, I think in many ways they're the same because people are fundamentally the same wherever they work. However, I do think one of the things that we have to think about, and it comes back to something that Fiona mentioned briefly, is this concept of purpose and why are we doing what we do and the majority of people not all but many people who've chosen to work in the public service are doing it because they do want to serve the community in some way or another now that has an advantage for well-being in many ways because it means that actually you can explain the value of the work that people are doing 
But what we knew from before, because of work we'd done before, is that frequently people do not really understand the value and people and the managers are very busy getting things done and the clarity of purpose is not always there. So I think in many ways it's the same, but I think the potential to, to improve it is probably stronger. Fee, do you want to pick up? Because of public service motivation um, and the potential to add value to the broader community, there is so much scope and so much opportunity for public sector organisations to really optimise the well-being of their employees. We probably argue that at the moment it's under-realised, so there's still a lot of room for improvement. Um, and what we've seen over various research projects, and certainly when I was working in the public service myself, is, and this is what Debbie was alluding to, there can be a tendency towards more busy work. So it can tend to be a bit more reactive. It can tend to be, well, the minister wants a brief on X, Y, Z within an hour. So there's a lot of people busy doing their work, but they don't ever see where that goes. Sometimes it doesn't actually go anywhere and that can really undermine their well-being. So mm -hmm. I think we've got two sides of the coin here um, and, and how well, and, and it really is about, well, how do you manage to prioritise and how do you manage to make sure that employees know why their work matters and that it is actually making an improvement in some way? Because we did a research project a few years ago that was looking at performance management. And one of the things that we found was this disconnect between what the senior leaders said, which was, oh, well, it's really hard to reward people because we don't have money. We haven't got this. We haven't got that. But particularly the kind of at the um, middle manager, slightly supervisor level, they said, well, we know we don't have money. That's not the point. I'd really love to know, though, what's happening to my work. And it turned out that many of them had, did not see what happened. And that was the thing that they would find most rewarding. And so when we were explaining that, people were like, oh, right, okay. So I think we need to, to recognize that reward is a really broad thing. And when we're thinking about reward and well-being, if we go back to the definitions at the beginning, reward can be very, very personal. What is it that will make me feel that I am making a difference? What is it that's going to make me feel that I am... Um, achieving what I want to achieve and if I can't do that that's a problem and so in many ways I think the public service has the opportunity to do that but I'm but as Fiona says I'm not sure that we're capitalizing on that at the moment. Some of our participants in that study were saying it can be as simple as take me along to a meeting with with the minister or with other senior people so I can see what's discussed and and I can see how what I've done informs decision making at that senior level and and for many that was seen as immensely rewarding and therefore it also improved their well-being because they could see why what they do matters uh, and one of the best stories from that project and I still think about this Debbie is why the mail matters in one of our case study organizations the director had managed to explain to their staff in the mail room why processing the mail within a certain time frame was fundamental to the achievement of the strategic to the strategic objectives of the department and also to the broader community and i still get goosebumps thinking about that because you think if you can do it there imagine imagine how you know how well you can do it in other contexts Fiona, lots of public sector bodies will now have a, a focus on well-being and what particular well-being programs that come out of that focus. But of course, well-being sits within a broader organisational culture, which may support 
or possibly even undermine those sort of well-being programs. It's easy, well, at least in theory, to design a well-being program. It's much harder to shift organisational culture. You've worked as a human resource practitioner in the APS and at CSIRO. How do you think practitioners can sort of resolve or at least work with that tension? Uh, I think you raise a really interesting point and one that's near and dear to Debbie's and my heart as well as um, the misunderstanding about what culture is as well. So culture is a much deeper phenomenon and it, it touches on what Debbie said before about you know the, what are the taken for granted assumptions about how we need to work, how we need to behave, how we need to structure ourselves to be able to achieve our goals but also meet the demands in our environment so this is why it's so difficult to change because it's got that element of path dependency um, deeply embedded in history um, whereas well-being programs can sometimes be a bit superficial they can be a bit tokenistic look what we're doing for our employees but to shift culture you've really got to be thinking about why do we exist how can how do we need to develop our processes in a way that encourage desired behaviors um and and if there is a genuine focus on employees and if there's a focus on well-being then you think then you would imagine that well-being a well-being lens would span across all managerial practices so rather than just being a well-being program that focuses on yoga You'd be thinking about, well, how do we optimise uh, the well-being of our staff because it's fundamentally important to what we do. So it's not just we're doing it because we want to attract and retain people. It's actually fundamental to our success. And thinking about the hedonic eudaimonic split as well, how do we make sure that, that everything is structured in a way that enables our employees to know what they're doing? So that involves significantly more work and more thinking across the organisation. It's not just that we're going to have a culture change. We've got a document that says we're going to change our culture and therefore nothing gets done. It is looking at all of our processes, how are decision made, decisions made, how are our HR practices established, and then making sure that they're reconfigured in a way that focuses on employee wellbeing, which is a much different way of working, isn't it, Debbie? Yeah, and if I can pick up on that, I mean, whenever I hear the words we're going to change the culture and then I say well that's fine we can all relax because it's not happening because it doesn't work that way around so one of the things that I work a lot thinking in systems and one of the ways of describing culture and well-being is that they're emergent properties of a system what that means is that when lots of things interact together, something else happens. And that's what happens with culture. When you've got well-being processes, when you've got the way that we're managing people, when we've got the type of work, all sorts of things come together and they create something new. And so an emergent property, one of them would be well-being because well-being comes out of different things. Another one would be culture, which comes out of different things. That matters because it means that how we manage it needs to be much more about, well, what, what are the behaviours that you want to see over a longer period of time? One of the questions that I often ask is, well, if you want to change the culture, what are the behaviours that you see now that you don't want to see? And what are the behaviours that you will be able to see? And how will you know it's working? And a lot of the time people can't do that. And that is why we often think that something's going to work, but it doesn't, is because we haven't thought through 
why is it that that would work or why is it that that won't work? And so when we think of culture and or well-being as a, an emergent property, it becomes clear that we've got to be looking at what are the things we can shift in the system and hold in place for long enough that will enable something new to get a new pattern of working and hold that. And so um, if we think about then what does that mean? It means, well, we're often holding the wrong people accountable for what's happening. So if we go back to many of the things that we're asked, that we're trying to do to shift the culture, shift the well-being, we're asking the individual to do things. We're asking the individual to go and do mental health first aid, which could help others, but is often very much about helping them be aware of their own um, area. It might be about going to, you know, expecting them to take care of their health. And if that works, then they'll feel better. Um, there's a whole load of things we're asking individuals to do but they're not responsible for the system. They can't change the things that are creating the problem. So coming back to what Fiona said right at the beginning, if the, if the challenges to well-being are coming to, from the fact that you have no control over where you work or how you work or what you're doing, then, you know, being, being brutal, being given a fruit box is not going to fix that. The other thing we have to remember, and it's, it's, it's and I, one of the fundamental things I think is really useful to remember is that Demotivation and motivation are opposite behaviors, but they're not the same triggers. So you can spend a lot of time trying to make somebody feel better, but if nothing's been done to stop the things that are making them feel worse, nothing's going to shift. So in systems terms, it's when something's stuck, we often call it shifting the burden to the intervener. You're asking the, the wrong person to shift the system. And I would say the problem with a lot of well-being at the moment is that we're asking individuals to shift system level problems. That brings us to the end of this first part of our discussion on well-being. On the news and resources page of IPA Victoria's website, you can find links to Deborah and Fiona's Twitter handles and their LinkedIn profiles if you want to stay in touch with their work. In the next episode, we'll explore whose responsibility well-being really is and why, if we want to move beyond the relatively simple idea of hedonic happiness, we need to be thinking about the crucial role played by public service managers. You'll also hear about the mistakes or misconceptions that Deborah Blackman and Fiona Buick see people making when they start developing workplace well-being programs, and how they think we can flip the story about well-being, away from being just about low well-being leading to low performance, to instead seeing the possibility of improved levels of well-being being linked to higher performance. So look for that next episode wherever you download your podcasts from. This podcast is part of a new IPA Victoria series on well-being in the workplace, which will be exploring the perspectives of people and culture professionals showcasing examples of workplace wellbeing initiatives and creating space to discuss the broader themes and systemic issues that underpin wellbeing in the workplace. The series is developed in partnership with the People and Culture Community of Practice at IPA Victoria, which is Victoria's peak public sector professional association and which aims to connect, empower and celebrate Victoria's public purpose sector. If you'd like to know more about this work, then search for People and Culture on the IPA Victoria website, which is vic.ipaa.org.au You can stay in touch with what we do by following us on LinkedIn at IPAA Victoria or on Twitter via IPAA VIC. This program is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Nick Basto and thanks for listening.